fourth time we've been uh, fortunate enough to share with you, but I have to admit last night I was pretty nervous because for the first time I was speaking without Candace being here, and she's kind of my support system. She makes funny faces when I'm trying to be funny and things like that. So I texted her last night and said, you know, I'm about to, about to go on. Could I have a, a little pep talk before I do? And so here's what she texted back. She said, listen, don't try to be funny. Don't try to be witty. Don't try to sound smart. Just be yourself. And so <laughs> we'll call that advice over a pep talk, but I thank her for that. And uh, I, uh, last time I shared with you guys, I talked about the, the concept of grace and uh, we use the story of the prodigal son. I'm not sure if I'm okay with you sitting that close. I'm just going to say that right now. It's kind of <laughs> stressing me out here. But uh, we talked about the prodigal son, and so we went through that story. And uh, I, I named the message, My Two Sons. And uh, I won't explain why, because it was kind of embarrassing. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you guys about it, and the reason why the youth and I had spent so much time on it, is I just think it's one of those uh, often misunderstood concepts, the, this idea of grace. And if you don't understand grace you start to attribute things to God that simply aren't true. You start to believe things about God that don't actually match his character. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Our definition, we used it last time, we'll kind of refer to it tonight, is simply to say this, that uh, grace is an amazing gift of forgiveness from and relationship with God that we simply don't deserve. And so let me refresh your memory quickly from, uh, from last time. We started the story, it began with two boys, and we hear from the younger son. And the younger says to his dad, listen, dad, I'm kind of done with this. I'm done with your rules. I'm done with the way you run this household. But there is one thing that I value that you have, and that's your money. So give me your inheritance now, and uh, I'll be on my way. And so shockingly, the dad does give him the, the money then. And he left, and he went and spent all that money on what the Bible calls wild living in a distant land. And so not surprisingly, things don't work out well for him. He runs out of money, and he ends up hungry and alone. And then he gets this idea what if I just go home? I mean, I know my dad can never forgive me for what I've done. I, he can never forgive me for the hurt I've caused him. But maybe just because his, his character is to be generous and to be kind and to be loving, maybe he'll let me work in the backfield. Maybe he'll take me on as one of his employees rather than take me back as his son. And so he gets up and, uh, and because of desperation and because he has nothing else to fall back on and he wants to make a change in his life, he gets up and he heads home. And he's sincere. I don't know if you remember from last time. He kind of worked out this speech ahead of time so he knew what to say when he saw his dad. And he's practicing it as he goes. And he says, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But maybe, just maybe, you could take me on as a hired servant. And hopefully you remember, because this, this is the best part. On his way back up the driveway, his dad sees him, and his dad runs down the driveway, embraces him, and although the son tries to spit out this confession and, and tries to explain to his dad how he's sorry, the dad already knows. And what we saw was a son that who had fallen way short of his father's expectations, but upon his return home, he found out that his father loved him as much then as he had before he ever left. And so that's where we left it last time. And last time, um, we, we ended with his father calling for a celebration and a party and saying, my son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is alive. And so I ended last time by just saying there's another brother that we didn't have time to get to. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So if you have your Bibles, you want to pull them out and you're looking for Luke 15. And it's interesting, I was reading something this week. It talked about a guy named Robert Estine. And Robert Estine was a Swiss printer back in 1555. And uh, he's the guy who came up with the idea of putting all the chapters and verse numbers in the Bible. Because before that, it was just a big, long book with no 
real set of organization outside of the names of the books. And so that's what he did. And so if you found Luke 15 already, you should thank Robert Estine. And if you uh, have a Bible that was printed before 1555, just start at the beginning and keep flipping and you'll find it when you find it. But uh, the, the Swiss are famous for a couple of things. There's that, there's chocolate, and there's rugby players. So I don't, I don't know if Dom's here or not. Fabian is. So, uh, so we'll read the story together. So here we go, Luke 15, starting in verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of his servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in, so his father came out and begged him. But he replied, All these years I have slaved for you, and never... Refuse to do a single thing that you told me to do. And in all that time, you've never even given me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when, the son, when this son of yours comes home, back after squandering for your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, listen, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. I think it's safe to say someone's not sharing in the joy. And I, I just love verse 30, and verse 30 is where it says, that son of yours, can't even call him his brother. Can't even look him in the eye and call him his brother. He's like, that son of yours. It reminds me that when I do something exceedingly embarrassing in public, uh, usually it's dancing at the mall or something, and my kids are embarrassed, and they, they won't even address me directly. They just look at Candace, and they just say, mother, control your husband. Same idea, can't even say his name. And I mean, this is a situation where, are you kidding me, was kind of invented for. This is shocking, he's, to him, he's thinking to himself. He's like, seriously, I can't even get a goat, and this is what my brother gets. Because here's what's happening. Here's what the older son is really saying. He's saying, Dad, I work hard for you every day, and, and he spends your money on prostitutes. And I choose to obey you in everything, and he spends your money on prostitutes. And I, every single day, honor you in everything I do. And he spends your money on prostitutes. Dad, I love you. But he. It's just not fair. And that's what the older brother's saying. Why do I bother obeying you? Why do I bother listening? Why am I still out working in the field? Why do I still honor you if? And because the older brother has a choice, and we may have missed this last time because I kind of purposely kind of zoomed past this verse last time. Is it still up there? Yeah, you can take it down. <laughs> You're all just staring at me with a shocked look on your face. So, uh, so this is what he said last time when we kind of went through it really quick. Luke 15, 12. It says, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, plural. We didn't really talk about this last time, but when the younger son got his inheritance, so did the older son. And actually, in Jewish law, if you, if you want to head back to Leviticus and look it up, you can. Um, you know, the rule was that the older son always got a double portion. So if you had two sons, the older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would get one-third. Or if you had four sons, the older son would get half, and each of the younger two boys would get a quarter. And if you had five sons, you needed a calculator, but this is how it was done. And so he was given his inheritance at the same time. What I think is so important about that is the older son is choosing to stay, choosing to work out in the backfield, even knowing technically now he owns the backfield, because that's what it meant to honor his father. And he had the freedom because of that inheritance to choose 
but he chose to honor, to respect, and to obey. One thing I like to do with youth as often as I can, I try to find uh, testimonies of, of young people kind of working through things that you can find in the Bible, but trying to putting a, a newer version, a newer face to it. So I want to share a video clip with you for the next couple of minutes uh, from a young girl named Addie. My family was, we're a Christian family. We always went to church together every Sunday. We got older and my sister went off to college. I was the only child at home and I loved it. I was going to school, making straight A's, and we still went to church as a family, volunteering with church. I felt like I got more quality time with my parents because I had their undivided attention. When my sister was at college, she started not caring as much and started failing classes and just not going. She kind of went a little far and got into the party scene a little bit and things just kind of spiraled out of control. She had kind of hit rock bottom and decided that it was time for her to come home. When she came home, it was really difficult for me because not only, I mean, she was home again and so I wasn't getting my parents' undivided attention. You know, they were always trying to figure out, you mean, is she okay? Um, what can we do for her? I felt like there was, they weren't really you know, caring about me and wondering how I was going to deal with the situation because my life was changing too. My sister was moving back home and I was struggling. It made me feel like I had to do, you know, everything better and counteract what she was doing. And I feel like everything that she did, I always had to do something to make it 10 times better. The day she came home, I had my two hardest exams and I was freaking out, not only because my tests were really hard, but my sister was coming home. She was going to live with us again. And you know, my parents were really focused on her and they just kind of ignored me and didn't mind the fact that I had exams or anything. It affected my relationship with my sister a little bit because I resented her and I hated the fact that, I guess I hated the fact that she just took all the attention away so fast. I kind of feel like I deserved more attention from my family just because, you know, I had done everything right. I always, you know, I, I did the right things, and I wasn't the one who went off and got into all this trouble, but they weren't, they still weren't giving me this attention, and it was all towards my sister, and I was just really upset with them at that point, and I went and talked to my parents about it, and I was like, look, you know, I'm tired of having to make everything right and trying to be the, you know, one who saves the day whenever anything goes wrong, and my mom was just like, you know, I'm really sorry, and your sister really needed the attention, and we're really sorry that we didn't focus on you and we know that you were going through a lot too. I had a really hard time understanding my parents' reasoning. I feel like they shouldn't have been so nice to her. She made all these poor choices and she comes home and pretty much gets the royal treatment by coming home. And I mean, she should have gotten in so much more trouble than she did. And it just didn't happen that way. I love that. I love that. I can't believe she's so honest in the video. It's just like, that's exactly how she's feeling, though. I think that's exactly how the, the older son's feeling in this story as well. It shows the mindset, though. I think it's a really short distance from saying, that's not fair, to why do I bother? And I, I think that, uh, you know, why should I bother being the good son when that's how the bad son gets treated? And it kind of asks the question, it's, it's, or it's similar to asking the question, well, if God forgives me no matter what, then does it really matter how I live? And uh, there are actually people in the church back 2,000 years ago who were making that argument. They were saying, if, well, you know, if God is glorified every time he offers us grace, then maybe we should sin more and then God will look even better. 
And uh, if you think I'm kidding, let's look in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Here's Paul saying, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? But please, whatever you do, don't just stop at the answer, of course not, because don't show your hands because it would be embarrassing if you didn't know this, but we all knew that, right? We read that first question, we're like, of course not. We don't need Paul to tell us that. But Paul goes on to explain it. You see, what he's saying here is you're not, the reason that you're not going to continue to live in sin is not because it's not fair to those who are trying to do good, but rather because you're done with it. You've died to that stuff. And you see, Paul's not saying you can't sin. Paul's really saying, why would you want to? Um, it's really the difference between something called behavior modification and authentic life change. I've been working my way through a book by uh, Rick Taylor. He's the author of a book called Anatomy of a Disciple. It's, uh, uh, we're doing a video series of that book on Tuesday nights at uh, Launchpad. And uh, during the video version of the book, he's, he describes behavior modification like this. He says, you know, we try really hard to do good, and then we fail. So we try harder to do good, and then we fail. And we try our really best to do good, and we still fail. And so what we end up with is this idea that uh, with all this increased effort, we're not actually producing a better representation of Christ. What we're really doing is creating a more frustrated and exhausted version of ourselves, because it really comes down to a power struggle. And it's really tough to live for Jesus in this world. We have all these things working against it. I think the Bible kind of draws out, there's these three ideas that draw us away from God. The first one is the Bible talks about the world uh, always trying to kind of push us away, the pressures we feel to look like everyone else, to act like everyone else, and to be everyone else. Uh, John 15 talks about that. And then on top of that, we know we have a literal enemy who is actively working to deceive and destroy. And uh, he's it, deceiving us is, is only part of it. Teaching us to deceive ourselves is the other half of it. And 1 Peter 5 talks about that. And then we have this battle against what the Bible sometimes calls the flesh, this idea that we, we kind of have a natural bent towards sin. It's almost like it's a genetic disposition. I knew I'd say it wrong. Disposition. Genetic disposition towards sin. This is why she needs to be here. <laughs> Romans 7 talks about, so there's all these things that are drawing us away from God. And it's, it's a fair question to ask. Well, with all of this working against us, how do we overcome And even if we have the best of intentions, and I totally believe that that older son had the best of intentions, working out in that field every day, doing what he thought he needed to do to please his father, how do we kind of compete with that? And I think the answer is in Romans 8. Romans 8, 13 and 14 says this, if you live by its dictates, the its being the world's dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And so we should probably double-check what he means by Spirit of God. So let's back up two verses to Romans 8, 11. Here's how he defines Spirit of God. He says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he will give to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So he give life to your mortal bodies. I mean, think about what's that saying. Yes, we have an enemy. And yes, we have pressures in our day-to-day lives that draw us away from God. But on the other side of the equation, we have Holy Spirit with the power to raise Jesus from the dead living in here. And suddenly it's not a fair fight, but it's the other way around now. And it's a game changer. How does the power of the media, how does the power of a bully, how does the power of your own misunderstanding of how God sees you 
stack up against that power. And it doesn't. I don't know if you know who this is. If you do, uh, don't put up your hand. It might be embarrassing. This is Harvey Brooker. Does that help you at all? Yeah, Harvey Brooker. I've never met Harvey Brooker, but I like his radio commercials. Harvey Brooker is a weight loss guru from Toronto, and he believes that the key to weight loss is that you find people with similar goals and you support each other. And, but the reason I bring him up is he has a slogan. If you could do it alone, you would have done it already. And I think that's a lot uh, similar to what we're talking about here. If you could defeat sin by yourself, then I assume you're already perfect. And I'm going to keep talking because I'm not. It's a little bit like this. You standing up to your sin on your own on the left, and you standing up to sin with the power of the Holy Spirit on the right. Are there pictures up there? Okay. Cool. So you'll have to imagine. It's hard to live a life for Jesus. I had a great joke about Candace there. We'll have to just relive it later. It's hard to live a life for Jesus, yes. But God not only gives us the power source, but also provides the way out. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you once you accept Jesus as your Savior. And because as we saw in Romans, we can and we have to put these things to death in our lives so that we can really live the life that God has laid out for us. But then God promises something amazing, and I mean he promises a lot of things that are amazing, but let's read this one together. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, not if, but when you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. That's a promise. That's a promise that says whatever you've gone through, other people have gone through. And whatever you're going through right now, other people are going through it right now. And so we're out of excuses. The Holy Spirit has offered us not just the power to change, but the actual set of directions that can lead us out of that change. And then what I think is, I don't know if there's such a thing as an underrated verse in the Bible, but I love this verse and you don't hear it a lot. Galatians 5.16 says this, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. This is key to me. There's two components, leading, and I don't think any of us are shocked to find that, that the Holy Spirit leads us, but it talks here about the decision and the choice is whether or not we're going to follow. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit will guide your life. It says you have to let Holy Spirit guide your life. And, when, and uh, I said this at last year's youth service, um, but I'll say it again. So, so often we get so focused on running from sin, running from the world, running from the flesh, but it's important to realize what we're running to, that we're running to God, we're running to his word, and we're running towards the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives. But that's what walking in the Spirit really refers to. It's being in step and in line with what Holy Spirit's doing. To put it the most simply, those sins and those temptations that at one point in your life were so difficult to overcome, you start to despise them. You start to turn away from them because Holy Spirit's led you in another direction. You see, your relationship with God doesn't end when you accept him. It begins there. And uh, that relationship is meant to move you and guide you and lead you into becoming a better representation of Christ. And so we're not left here on our own to figure this out. We have Holy Spirit here every minute, guiding, leading, and moving. And we also have the perfect example for us to aspire to, and that's Christ Jesus. Kenneth loves to do puzzles, but she has very little chance of doing a puzzle without seeing the picture first. She needs to see the picture, then she can figure out what color goes where. She actually does it on her iPad now, which just seems weird to me. But without that beginning picture, 
you don't know where you're heading, and that's who Christ is for us. He's that perfect model. There's perfection. There's your goal. Let Holy Spirit take you there. I, um, I'd summarize this uh, probably as simply as this, just say the younger son, we learned that the younger son had to learn that there was nothing he could ever do that would make God love him less. But then we found that the older son needed to learn there was nothing he could ever do that would make God love him more. And the, uh, the, st- the parable of the prodigal son is exactly that. It's a parable. It's a story. And uh, it was used by Jesus. It was a common way of teaching, but it took very understandable, earthly things and tied to it a biblical principle. And, and so when you read this story or when you heard this story from Jesus, you would have really identified um, and, and would have been shocked by the younger son's decision. And you would have been mildly surprised by the father's reaction when he returned home. And you probably would have identified very strongly with how that older brother was felt. But it was more than just a story. And we can see in the life of Jesus, he lived this out. And you won't have to go far to find it if you just want to flip forward a few pages to Luke 19. We're going to meet somebody there named Zacchaeus. And uh, you, may, you probably only know a couple things about Zacchaeus. Anybody know the song from Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a... Nice. Very good. Um, I, I, there's another one, and, and you're going to think I made this up as a joke, but we, when we had, I don't know if you ever heard of the Donut Man. Yeah, the Donut Man had a different one. It was, I'm short and fat, and I'm not too pretty. All right, we'll move on. You don't know that. But that's all we know. We, all we know is he was short, or at least too short to see Jesus, and he was a tax collector. But we can glean a lot from that. So let's take a look at it. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10, says this. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man named, there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be at a guest in your home today. That's how I'm going to have lunch at one of your houses today, as soon as we're done. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if, yeah, right, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And you see, I see such a strong uh, connection here. And, and in, it really is difficult to understand how hated somebody like Zacchaeus would have been. Because I don't know anybody who works for CRA, but I'm pretty sure they're nice people. And I'm pretty sure they work really hard, and I, you know, I'd be happy to spend time with them. But this was different. This was a tax collector during the Roman occupation. You see, Rome was a conquering army. And they had conquered the land of Israel, and they were an occupation army. And so uh, for any Jew, and Zacchaeus was a Jew, to help oppress their own people, this was the worst thing you could do. To be a dishonest traitor is pretty low on the list of places you want to go to visit. But um, what we do know is that this is the person that Jesus chose, this, this man up in the tree, and he knew exactly who he was. You see, but the other thing is, back in Jesus' time, I think we can find something else of, about Zacchaeus and, and his upbringing. Because back in Zacchaeus' time, names were chosen very carefully. Not so much today. Does anybody recognize who this is? 
Emily Elizabeth. Well, I have a daughter named Emily Elizabeth. You probably recognize her better if we go to the next picture. Yeah, now you know who she is, right? Well, I have a daughter named Emily Elizabeth, and we picked, Candace and I picked the name because it was pretty, and uh, Elizabeth was my mom's middle name, and I just like the alliteration. Both my daughters have the same letter for their first and middle name, so I call them A squared and E squared. It's just easier. But, uh, but when I called my mom to give her the good news that she was a grandma and that was a little girl, and of course she asked, well, what did you name her? And I said, Emily Elizabeth. And there was a pause, and I thought, well, oh, she's choked up because I, I chose Elizabeth to be her middle name too. So I'll just give her a minute, and then after what seemed like forever, she said, you mean from like Clifford? I had no idea. We, we, I'm like, Clifford what? Like, and she, so she went on, and my mom's a librarian, so it's not surprising she would have known that. But uh, we chose the name Emily Elizabeth not knowing this connection because, cover your sweetheart, uh, we didn't put that much thought into it. It sounded, <laughs> like it sounded nice. It's like, I like the name Emily. I, and we both work in education, so right away there's a bunch of names we're not willing to use, right? If you're a teacher, you know exactly what we're talking about. I won't, I won't mention them. Mark's one of them, but uh, I won't mention it. <laughs> but that's just why we chose that name, because we liked it. But back then, 2,000 years ago, you didn't choose a name because you liked the sound of it. You chose a name as a statement about what you wanted your son or daughter to become. And I've lost my place. Here we go. So uh, it's interesting. Here's what, here's what Zacchaeus means. Zacchaeus means pure and innocent. And so Zacchaeus' parents wanted him to grow up to be pure and innocent. And here he was, this hated tax collector. But you see it? Zacchaeus is just like that younger son spent years rolling around in the pig pen. But then he comes to Jesus, truly repentant, knowing that he's done wrong, looking to make amends. And, uh, and Jesus, knowing his heart, just welcomes Zacchaeus into the family. And because of that was Jesus' purpose. It says in verse 10, Jesus came to save the lost. And the lost, and it just it resounds with me, that's what the father said when his son came home. And when he's trying to explain to his older brother why they're celebrating, saying he was lost, but now he's found. But the older brother's in this story as well. If you look in verse 7, he's the one, the, the one who refuses to come in, doesn't want to be part of that party. And in verse 7, it talks about uh, those people grumbling because Jesus would spend time with this man, too unhappy at how Jesus responded to that prodigal. They both had that same misunderstanding of grace, not understanding the true character of God, that he loves you now at the absolute maximum amount. There is no more, there is no less. You can't lose it if when you do wrong. You can't gain more by doing right. That, that's how God sees you at all times. And so the question I ask is what's holding you back or what's holding us back? And I wouldn't be myself if I didn't give you guys some homework. So I'm going to give you some homework tonight, today. And uh, it's, it's something, that, something that's big in teaching right now is something called differentiated instruction. And in the context of homework, what that means is not everybody gets the same homework. Depending where you are and what stage of the lesson you're at, you're all going to get different types of homework. So I've got three homework assignments, and you get to choose which one. So don't just count and see which one's easier. You choose which one you think fits for you. Because uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm much more of a teacher than a preacher, and so this is my comfort zone. So let me start here. Is this you? Do you really deep down believe that God's disappointed with you? Do you secretly feel that God's tired of all your sin, tired of all your shortcomings, and that it's God that's holding out on you? If that's you, then your homework is Micah 7.19. And I want you to go there and I want you to read it because it talks about forgiveness being a miracle of a fresh start, a new beginning and a second chance. 
And you see, we might dwell on our past sin, and all of our sin that's been confessed is past sin, but God doesn't. And the, the illustration given here is that God takes that sin, and once you've confessed it, it says he hurls it into the depth of the ocean, never to be seen again. And so your homework is to take that verse and read it every day this week and just let the Holy Spirit lead. Or is it that you believe that you've earned your place with God because of all the good things you've done? Your church attendance is impeccable. You read your Bible most of the time when you have the time. You pray every day, and you're doing all of these things with this belief that God must somehow love you more. God must be pleased with you, and this is what you have to do. And you really believe that if you just try harder, God will just be that little bit happier with you. If that's you, I want you to check out Galatians 2.21. Uh, Because here Paul reminds us in in rather strong words that if that's how you believe God works, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. That his sacrifice was worthless because if you could have earned it on your own, then why send Jesus? And so that's your homework to to spend some time thinking about that this week. And the third one I'm going to give you is if uh, if you're dating the church or maybe if you're just flirting with the church and you've yet to make a commitment, I think you still fall in the same category that you believe there are things you need to do first before you can make a commitment. And uh, if that's you, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2 is your homework. And what it talks about there is that today is the day of your salvation, that your relationship with Jesus Christ, your relationship with God begins when you accept. And then the whole point of your life is to carry on from that point towards the final goal of being more Christ-like. And if that's where you are and that's what's holding up your decision, you don't need to. That's what I did for, for probably close to a year. I believe, but I thought I had to clean things up first. I thought I had to learn to be a better person so that I could actually go into that church and make that confession of faith, and it's not true. That all you need to do is have an understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for you, and then you're ready. And today is the day of your salvation. So that's your homework for you. I'll, uh, I'll be checking to make sure you've done it through Mark. He'll tell me. But uh, can I just pray for you before we head out then? Is that all right? Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for just the opportunity to share, uh, not just with the youth every week, Lord, but share tonight uh, just some of the truth that just you've been teaching me. And uh, I shared uh, not too long ago with a number of people that uh, it's, not always, uh, it's not always fun to learn. It's not always fun to um, understand your own shortcomings, Lord. But I just thank you so much for being willing to take the time with all of us, and especially with me, Lord, just to to keep laying this out for me and explaining this to me and just letting the Holy Spirit lead, Lord, because uh, it's, it's so easy. It's so absolutely easy to fall, into the, to fall into one of these two categories where we just we hold back from you because we don't truly understand who you are and what you, what you want from us. We know, Lord, that uh, you want us as sons and daughters, not as employees. And uh, I just want to give you all the glory for today, Lord, as people go out, just uh, bless our time, bless the fellowship that happens before we leave, and just this week, Lord, uh, let the Holy Spirit uh, lead and, and just give us opportunities to follow. I just pray this in your name, Jesus.